Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we have another fantastic discussion, this one again surrounding substance use disorder treatment in the emergency department. And we've got two fantastic experts who are going to focus today on how to build a bridge program as well as how to finance one. Your guest today will be Dr. Amy Moulin, who's a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis, and the chief of addiction medicine there, as well as Ariana Campbell, who's a PA working at Marshall Medical Center, serves as the senior advisor of MAT at U.S. Acute Care Solutions, and has dedicated a significant portion of her career to improving the healthcare outcomes of patients with substance use disorder. You'll also hear the voices of Drs. Scott Weiner and Kate Hawk, who were the original facilitators for this discussion. I'll break in every once in a while, giving you updates on references that the talks are referring to. I'll pass this over to Ariana and Amy. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about bridge programs. This is something near and dear to both of our hearts. And so we're going to talk today about something really specific, actually, which is how to build a bridge program, but even more than that, how to pay for it. I'm a big believer in that people need to be paid for their work and you can't really do anything if you can't fund it. So we're going to talk about different strategies that you can use to help support your work taking care of people in your emergency department with substance use. So first off, we're gonna talk about how we got to where we are. Our overdose deaths are continuing to climb. And I look at it and I think back in pre-pandemic times when I thought that 60,000 deaths a year was a big number. And boy, have we exceeded all expectations. And just to recognize that a lot of this is being driven by fentanyl, and that we're really seeing an escalation in overdose deaths still to this day, even though we've been talking about it for a really long time. This is the other piece that I think is really important. And that's that 10% of Americans with substance use disorder receive any type of substance use disorder treatment. And an even smaller fraction of those receive an FDA approved medication as part of their treatment. And this really drives home to me the huge gap in treatment availability in almost all of our communities. And I recognize with this statistic that we are just not going to get there when we continue to focus on treatment efforts on small boutique substance use clinics. This really has to be an all hands on deck approach. And that's, of course, where we come in in the emergency department in providing that low barrier, rapid access to addiction treatment to everyone in our communities. This is Ariana. I wanted to really point out that the system has really been created with these boutique accessible points that aren't really serving the needs of the people that we see in our emergency departments every day. And so our idea is to make medical access to buprenorphine easier than access to street drugs. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but we're very set on this because we know that when we talk about FDA-approved medication that works and changes lives, that is buprenorphine. So that is what we're talking about today. So I want to talk about why emergency departments in particular are critical substance use disorder treatment centers. Because I can tell you for 17 years in my career, I did not think that this was true. And only over the last five years have I realized how important emergency departments are in really getting to the folks who need treatment the most, 
the people who are not engaged in care already. And we know that we already have a captive audience. We have patients in our emergency department, one in 10, who have a substance use disorder. And we've also learned through a randomized controlled trial that I will talk about, that when we actually just give the right medication at the right time in the emergency department, it doubles the likelihood that a patient will be in treatment at one month. And this treatment is available 24 seven, 365. It's really important to acknowledge that. And when we discuss emergency department treatment for opioid use disorder, I know something that came out of my mouth at different times was, again, this is not an emergency department thing. But let me remind you, this is an overdose epidemic. And what we do know is after somebody comes to our emergency department post-overdose, so this is a non-fatal overdose, we know that 5% die within a year. And again, these are folks who are in their 20s, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds. And of those who died, one in five died in the first month. And of those, one in five died in the first couple of days. So there's this huge spike in deaths at 48 hours. Now think of all of the other medical problems that we treat in emergency departments and look at this mortality rate. This is something that absolutely means we should be doing much more in our emergency departments and we can and will save lives by giving the right medication to folks from our emergency departments. Addiction is treatable in emergency departments. So this was a randomized controlled trial that we love to talk about all the time. If you've listened to any of the rest of the program, you'll have heard this reference before, but I just want to point it out here since uh, Ariana and Amy don't list it specifically. The reference is from lead author D'Onofrio, articles titled Emergency Department Initiated Buprenorphine Slash Naloxone Treatment for Opioid Dependence, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA in 2015. That was done at Yale and that was published in JAMA. And what we found was when folks were offered actually pretty good treatment. So screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. There was a one-month follow-up rate at 37%. But when we actually offered the right treatment, and this treatment being buprenorphine, and I remind you, it's a sublingual medication. This is a medication that I administer to patients in my waiting room when we are very busy, that we more than double the likelihood that that person will remain in treatment in one month. And this treatment is life-saving. This treatment reduces a person's risk of dying from any cause by more than 50%. So when we talk about the business case for this, I have to just acknowledge that business case is extremely important. This treatment works. And we also know that this medication is very, very safe. So we're doing this in California at a really high rate. We started a program several years ago in which we placed navigators into emergency departments. And through this work, we were able to provide medication for addiction treatment. Almost 60,000 people were prescribed or administered medication. So we're doing this at a high level and it's working. So now we need to talk about how to sustain this, how to really make the business case to your chief financial officers and to your C-suite at your hospital. So Amy, let's talk about what we can do to make sure these programs are sustained and how we can really present that business case for this. Yes. Thank you, Ariana. So hopefully you're really excited about building a bridge program in your emergency department. And your next question is, okay, I want to do this. I believe it's the right thing, but how can I do it? And there's basically two strategies, boil it down to two. One is maximize billing codes. There are some existing billing codes. We're going to talk about them in detail that if you're not using, you should. 
And the other one is finding friends, is how to work with stakeholders in your community, managed Medicaid plans, your local behavioral health program, treatment centers, and then really your hospital. And there's some different strategies that you would use, one of which is local treatment centers. You could drive a lot of volume, and we have seen how local clinics will actually help support navigators in emergency departments in exchange for some of that volume. And then finally, we're going to talk specifically about how to make that case to your hospital, because ultimately you're going to be saving the money. So let's talk about billing codes, billing for buprenorphine. We have a specific procedure code, a G code for the initiation of medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the emergency department. This is live now. It is reimbursed by Medicare. It is reimbursed by a lot of state Medicaid programs. So if you're not using it, you should absolutely be doing it for your Medicare patients. And then a lot of your Medicaid patients will be paying this as well. And we've even talked to some commercial payers who will also reimburse for these services. First thing you should do, use your G-code. And then expert codes. There are billing for screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment codes. You can use these for opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, stimulant use disorder. So this is pretty broad. These codes are not required to be covered in the emergency department by most commercial insurances. However, a lot of times they are. So if you are not billing them, you should. Basically, it requires you to document some screening, so an audit or a DAST, if that's documented in your chart, along with the number of minutes that took to do it, 15 to 30 minutes or greater than 30 minutes, and you can bill these codes. The cool part about this is the work doesn't have to be done by you just has to be supervised by someone who can do an expert, which could be you. So this work could be done by someone else, a navigator, a nurse educator, under the supervision of the physician and build. So that's your maximizing your billing codes. Those are things that are live now that you could do. Our next strategy involves working with community stakeholders. And to do this, basically, you're going to go out in your community and make some friends. You can work with your local behavioral health or public health departments who are responsible for providing substance use treatment care to people in your community. They need you. They need you to be invested in this work, and they need you to help identify and start patients in treatment and to partner with the organizations that they have developed. This is a great source of funding, particularly for a patient navigator or a peer support specialist that could be embedded in your department to help you take care of patients. So these are really great partners to reach out to them and explain how you can help them do their job better if they would just provide you support and a navigator in your department. The other one is your local treatment clinics. You can be a big driver of volume to local treatment clinics that are taking care of patients. So sometimes by partnering with a high volume clinic, you can help increase volume to that clinic if they will help you to support a navigator. Also, you can develop some good MOUs with your local treatment clinic where you can send patients pretty rapidly in a low barrier way to your local clinics. And then finally, looking at the managed care plans. There are benchmarks 
from NHEDIS measures that the managed care plans are measured against. One of them is a follow-up after an ED visit with for other drugs of abuse and alcohol. The managed care plans have to report metrics for different people within their plans for their follow-up rates, their seven and 30-day follow-up rates. The national benchmarks are really low. You can, with a small amount of effort, blow those metrics out of the water for that managed care plan. So you can reach out to a managed care plan and say, hey, how are you performing on your HEDIS measures? A follow-up after an ED visit for alcohol or other drug use. I bet it's pretty low and I could make it better. So this is a good source of support where you can form a positive relationship with a health plan and encourage them to help support your work in the emergency department in exchange for improving metrics that they have to report on. So if you look, here is a measure of those national benchmarks for the different HEDIS measures, looking at different insurance rates. So this is the national benchmarks for follow-up after an ED visit for alcohol or substance use within seven days. These are really low we can do a lot better. So think about how you present this to your local plans. And then finally, communicating success within the hospital to your hospital stakeholders. Patient navigation, particularly for substance use disorder, is cost-effective. It results in cost savings because of a reduction of inpatient days and ED visits. This has been shown through rigorous studies, and I bet you can see it in your hospital as well. Substance use navigator reduces costs, it reduces inpatient admissions, it reduces repeat ED utilization. A lot of this patient population is expensive to take care of in your hospital. It's expensive to take care of in your emergency department. It's actually expensive to do the wrong thing. When we don't treat underlying addiction, we often have patients come back. They're admitted with expensive complications from drug use. They're admitted with trauma, infections, but if we actually treat the addiction and get patients into outpatient care, we reduce their utilization. So one of this strategy is to go to your hospital and explain how you are going to save them money by reducing utilization for expensive patients by incorporating substance use navigator into the work of your emergency department. I understand the system out there is just full of red tape and can feel really complicated and difficult to navigate, but we're hoping that using some of these strategies can help you cut through the red tape and build your bridge program. And then your final question might be, isn't this illegal? It's not. So buprenorphine and methadone can be prescribed for pain without an X waiver. MAT can be administered, so buprenorphine and methadone can be administered in a hospital to any admitted patients for the duration of their stay. Buprenorphine and methadone can be administered in the emergency department for three days without an X waiver. Buprenorphine and methadone can be dispensed from an emergency department for up to three days supply with an exemption from the DEA. But really, let's be honest, just sign up for your X waiver if you show and look at this link, it will take you directly to the SAMHSA website. You could do it now. It's free. It lasts forever. Just do it. Sign up for your X waiver. It makes everything easier. That was fantastic. Very good information. And particularly making this business case for people that are champions and want to make this happen, but have to bring it to the administrators and get approval. So this is, this is really helpful. I actually just wanted to make a comment and just highlight that article that you showed, which really caught my attention as well. That one from Ormi out of Baltimore. 
and they showed, you know, you would save $17,000 per patient. Now, substance use navigators, recovery coaches, et cetera, they're worth their weight in gold, but their salaries are actually not that high compared to physician staff, even nursing staff. Just a couple of patients treated by them pays for them themselves. It's, it's pretty staggering. And I was, I was really impressed by that article. And I've, I've shared that with some of our administrators, and I hope that others will too. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful argument to make to your own hospital. Uh, When I started, actually, this is how I started with the patient navigator in my own emergency department well before California Bridge is actually he started based on a pilot program and we tracked high utilizers. And actually, we went around in the very beginning, talked to the nurses and identified the patient who was causing the most pain to the nursing staff was a gentleman who, when he used methamphetamines, would hallucinate that were snakes all over his body. So of course, he took off all his clothes and would expose himself to the waiting room, to the nurses, to other patients, and was in the emergency department quite frequently and was a big challenge. And we focused on him, we intervened, we got him into housing, we got him into treatment, and he stopped coming. And based on that one patient alone, we showed the hospital that that one patient, we saved about half a million dollars because he was in the ED so frequently. Wow. And it's it's not just money, but it's also a wellness issue like you spoke about as well. And I think that the ability to treat patients with substance use disorders, which for so many years was so frustrating, and now we can actually do something and help them is so empowering and it really helps wellness. Yeah, I was going to actually comment as well when I was able to communicate in my own rural hospital that our substance use navigator had become, just to Amy's point, really indispensable to the nurses because she was able to help patients who were experiencing a lot of challenges and who, again, were not connected with the system. And she was able to sit with them, engage them in treatment. We were able to give appropriate treatment. And then we had a system to refer them to out patient care, it was working so well without all of the billing codes. When we communicated that with our administration, we knew that we always needed our navigator. And the big deal was when our navigator was added to our emergency department budget as a position that we will continue regardless of grant funding, et cetera. So I think that's an important point is to communicate what's going on, these stories, and certainly all of the information we have on cost savings as well to administration to continue improved treatment. Thanks so much for giving us the rundown on both on the rationale and reason for building these programs and also really digging into some of the logistics of of how to pay for them. For folks who don't spend a lot of time sort of doing administration or thinking about billing codes, could you help walk people through how these billing codes interact with the level of care codes that people use when billing for an emergency department chart and whether they're additive or, you know, really how those things fit together in order to really get reimbursed for the services that you're providing? Yeah, really fantastic question. So basically your basic ED visit is billed based on your level of service, increasing in complexity from one, two, three, four, five is someone who's high complexity. And then on top of that, we have critical care. So you would have your basic ED visit that would get billed out as the level of complexity one through five. And then there's add-ons. So if you sew up a laceration, that's a procedure that MA, and it's billed separately. So you have your level of complexity plus billing for that procedure. 
The MAT code is a procedure. So similar to sewing up a laceration is in addition to the level of complexity, the MAT procedure code is also a procedure code. So it's an add-on. SBIRT is also an add-on service. So that is in addition to the level of complexity can be billed as an add-on service. Some places, if the screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment, SBIRT, is done by a hospital employee rather than someone on your team on the professional side. So if you have someone who's employed by the hospital that can do the screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment under their license, that can be billed as an add-on to the facility fee, and that money will go to the hospital. So you can design a program where you go to your hospital and say, we need some patient navigators. I'm going to save you a ton of money. And if you hire someone who can do it, or if you have a social services department who is supervising them, they can bill that as an add-on to their facility fee. So you can actually use that one either way. I was actually looking as, as you're speaking about the G2213 code, which I was not aware of. And for the American Society of Addiction Medicine in 2021, the reimbursement for that, which is just providing buprenorphine in the ED, was over $60. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you have a lot of patients and you're already doing it, you may as well capture the reimbursement. Um, so I was pretty impressed by that. A lot of emergency physicians don't actually do their own billing, obviously. They, they just see patients, they do their chart, and then it goes off to a billing and coding company. Do you recommend reaching out to the billing and coding company to let them know about these codes and make sure that they're capturing them? Yes, absolutely. And so for us, for the MAT procedure code, that one, we actually recommend documenting it as a procedure. So write buprenorphine induction procedure and then write a little note so that they can capture that as a procedure code. And then the expert codes, you have to document an audit or a DAST, which are the screening portions and then where that person was referred to treatment. And then it's basically time-based. I also agree with you, particularly around the MAT procedure code. In my state, we actually will get more from our Medicaid program for the procedure code than the visit. So they can actually make a big difference to you. I mean, a big difference to your billing, particularly for some of the other government payers. And the the last question I had is is just about your negotiations too with with insurers and such. And it's, we we work in an interesting model in the emergency department because a lot of our work is still fee for service. And so that patient you mentioned that was, you know, half a million dollars a year in expenses, that often comes back to, the hospital or the, the physicians or the group as, as services rendered. But from a population level or like an ACO, accountable care organization level, it, it makes no sense and is, is a complete waste of resources. Have you had any experience working with insurers to try and say, look, if we implement these services, we'll be able to save you, you money because your, your covered lives won't be using the emergency department? You know, healthcare costs are really interesting because you bring up a good point is who's cost? Like, who is that patient costing money to? So in the example that I gave was a patient who was not part of an ACO, was generally uninsured slash was eligible for our state Medicaid program, which reimbursed significantly lower than his care cost the hospital. So a lot of the cost of care fell on the hospital and the providers. So for him, the case we could make was to the hospital. But you're absolutely correct, particularly for the managed care plans, reaching out to the population health folks from those managed care plans 
particularly if you have a managed care plan that is also taken on the responsibility for substance use treatment. We have worked with some managed care plans in different counties, particularly those that also take on that responsibility. And they have shown a lot of interest in supporting the work of navigators, even to the point where some of those organizations will actually just pay for the navigator services and embed them in the emergency department. Other places that we've seen do that are the County Behavioral Health Department, who also is responsible for that patient population, where we've seen them actually pay for and embed the navigator in the department. Fantastic. Well, Amy and Ariana, thank you so much for sharing this information, giving us all so much to think about as we make this business case, which goes along with wanting to do the right thing for our patients. I'm, I'm sure this will be of tremendous use to the people in our learning collaborative. And just on behalf of Equal, we just really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and insight, and particularly the work you do with California Bridge, which has really been a model for the rest of us in this country. So kudos for the great work, and thank you so much for doing the webinar today. And I'm going to add a thank you to the listeners once again for giving us your time today. I hope you found this segment particularly helpful. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series at the ASAP Equal website or at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com.